Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. So what I want to talk about today with the Onyx features is while using the Hunt app, the, there's a layer that you can turn on called the Wilderness Layer. And what this layer does is it's able to show you any designated wilderness areas and they usually have unique rules and regulations. So... You know, basically this layer details private, federal, state, and tribal wilderness areas, as well as federal wilderness studies areas. And and what that does is shows you ahead of time to look into the specific rules and regulations within these regions. And for the most part, that normally means that there's no motorized access. And there's basically some of the deepest, darkest country that you can get into. So the wilderness layers is something that uh, if you're looking for, you know, a true, as the name says, wilderness experience and get really back into some areas, this might be something you want to look at. So with the wilderness features, you can turn that on and off at any time within the app to show an overlay with some dotted lines to be able to show you the outline and the curvatures of that wilderness area. So if you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app, you can use the promo code EMW at checkout. That'll save yourself 20% off of the Hunt app. Also, the University of Elk Hunting. So Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting course available from beginners to experts. Anyone can learn from this online course. But one of the things that's not advertised a whole lot with it is the benefits that you get with you can get discounts through companies like Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls through the Elk 101 store, which has basically all gear available. And you get 15% off of the store, the Elk 101 store. So you're getting a better deal than just about anywhere else. And it's a, it's pretty nice to be able to have that extra feature. So with a few gear purchases, it pays for the course in itself in, in one year. So check out the University of Elk Hunting. Use the code East Meets West at checkout. Save yourself 20 bucks on the online membership. Maven Optics. So Maven has come out with the highest quality optics available with their binoculars, rifle scopes, spotting scopes, and they're able to do that at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. And Maven is very highly customer service based company and they take pride in their products and being able to serve you the customer so that's why when i originally bought maven optics years ago now uh, when i purchased them that was the reason i like supporting companies that have strong customer service and you know great warranties and like i said not to mention there's just some some great people behind the company. So if you choose to buy some Maven Optics, use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT at checkout. Get yourself a free gift with any full price optics order. All right, so to kind of get in the intro here of the podcast, I am releasing this one, the second one this week. Once again, just have so many you know good podcasts that uh, 
that I've recorded with some great guests and most of them are pretty timely as far as, you know, releasing them later in the year would be less relevant as they are right now. So that means I have to record more to fill in the spots later on. I'll do that. But, um, so I've been putting a lot of work into trying to get these out here along with some extra content. Uh, I should have a, a food list up. Uh, actually, I'm, this is going to hold me accountable by saying this as I'm recording it you know, a day ahead of time to get my food list done and updated on the website. You can check that out. Breakdowns of the food, your calories, the calories from fat, protein content, carbohydrates. I mean, I broke it down very detailed and you can check out my gear list there and all the products available. I'll have that over on the East Meets West Hunt dot com journal page so check that out and we can go from there if you're looking to pick up a new maybe you want a new hat or something for hunting season or just wearing around camp traveling anything like that definitely check out our website as all of our apparel items three percent of those sales go to a conservation organization and right now the two that we're supporting um throughout for these sales is backcountry hunters and anglers and qdma the quality deer management association so if you look under each specific item you can see those those uh who the which i guess organization that the the money is going towards so check that out online i'd highly recommend taking a look at the stealth trucker multi-cam hats that's the one i'll be wearing out west this year and also, we have some new mountain buck hats and just a, a variety of, of new hats and shirts that are out there. So check those out online at eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop. All right, without further ado, let's jump into the podcast here with Bill Vanderheiden from Iron Will Outfitters. All right, we're back for another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast, and I have on the line right now Bill Vanderheiden. Did I pronounce that right, Bill? Uh, Vanderheiden. Vanderheiden. I was close. <laughs> hey, Bill. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, good to talk to you, Bill. It's been it's been a few months since we've got the chat. Yeah, it's been. Uh... It's been a busy summer for sure, but uh, seasons are right around the corner here, so it's a good time to, to talk hunting. Yes, yes, it is. That's that's for sure. So, Bill, you uh, you're the the owner and founder of Iron Will Outfitters, and uh, if anyone's listening to this podcast, we'll kind of dive into that in a little bit. But what I wanted to start off was giving a little bit of a, a background on yourself here, and you know what kind of got you to the point you're at today. Yeah, so I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin hunting whitetails, bow hunting, primarily. Although some rifle hunting too. My my dad and, and grandpa were were bow hunters. So, you know, and most of my friends were back there too. It was a really high high number of deer hunters in that area. So, um, you know, spent a lot of years bow hunting whitetails was really a passion back then. And um, about twenty years ago, I moved to Colorado. So I had. 15 or so years of, of bow hunting whitetails, um, was pretty successful at it. Um, and then, you know, had a chance to move to Colorado for a job and I was pretty excited to get out to the mountains and try elk hunting. And yeah, so that was 20 years ago. And since then I've been 
you know, bow hunting for elk has really become a passion of mine. It was right away. And, uh, and I do a lot of that. I do, I hunt mule deer as well. Um, you know, this year I got a pronghorn tag and a mountain goat tag and, um, and I'll go back and hunt. I typically go back and hunt whitetails as well, but yeah, I was, so I grew up a, a whitetail hunter, but made the transition to out west elk hunting, and and um, it's a lot different. I had I struggled for a while there, and uh, and you know I actually made a, a bad shot on an elk and had broadhead fail, and that's what got me into really developing my own broadhead to make something that was a little more worthy for uh, for elk. But um, yeah, so that's a little bit of background. Yeah. So what was that? I guess, what was that learning curve like? I mean, I know a little bit from, you know, my experience at doing it, but, you know, once you moved out there and everything else and we're, we're, you know, full force into elk hunting, you know, what were some of those things that you ran into that, you know, either you were doing, you know, incorrectly or, you know, something that just took a little bit to learn? Yeah, so it was, it was difficult start for me, Uh, you know, after, I was to the point where on whitetail I could, you know, target a big buck and, you know, figure out, figure him out and, you know, take that buck. And I was really, um, having a lot of success there. And then coming out elk hunting, um, started working for a company out here and no, surprisingly, nobody at the company really bow hunted for elk. So I was hoping to get, um, get a little information from somebody, but I didn't, couldn't get any. So I just, uh, just started heading out of the mountains and, and hunting. So I kind of learned everything, you know, about myself from scratch. And back 20 years ago, there just wasn't the amount of information, at least not that I knew of or where to find it, I guess. So, um, you know, some of the things off the top of my head that were, that were, you know, big problems for me is that, you know, elk move a lot. And just cause you found sign of where some elk were, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I'm used to with a whitetail, the ranges are closer, shorter. If you're, if you have, you know, good sign trails, whatever, a lot of times you can just set up on them and sit there enough days and you're going to get some deer to come by. Um, but elk, you know, if, just cause you had good sign from a week or two back, they might be miles away. So, you know, you really got to move and find the elk. So I, you know, I spent some time doing that hunting elk where they're, where, when they're not there, isn't any good. So Definitely. And, and, you know, I would, I would plan this trip where I'd plan a backpack into a spot and set up my main camp and hunt around that area. And that's not always a good plan. If the elk aren't there, you gotta, you gotta go find them. So that's one, one advice I'd give is, uh, you know, put on the miles until you're, you're seeing elk, seeing, hearing, you know, smelling, or you got super fresh, you know, droppings or something, make sure the elk are, in your area and, you know, put on the miles until you, until you find them. Um, cause if you just pick up a spot, that's a nice place to camp. That might be all you're doing is just enjoying your camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you can do that all summer, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, it's funny that, that you say that. I mean, I've heard it so much more now and, and kind of learned a little bit in my limited experience and is, you know, I, I, that's the first thing I always, thought you're supposed to do is just, you know, backpack into an area and set up camp. And that's where you hunted for the week. And I, you know, quickly learned that that can really limit you one, you know, if you're going to go back in and you're willing to move around and, you know, haul your camp around different places, that's, you know, one thing, but if you're planning on hunting out of that same camp or that same, you know, ridge 
and the elk aren't there or maybe you bump them out then it's uh it can be detrimental to the to the rest of your trip so and with me i guess i've been taking actually a lot of the the truck camping style and, and being able to bounce around to more areas has been kind of the kind of the philosophy that i've taken most recently yeah that's not a bad way to go but you know it's just some way to be mobile um often i backpack into an area that i expect them to be at and if it kind of varies but a lot of times we'll just do one man tents and be real mobile to be able to move in further or or come out if needed um but yeah i have a way that if you find the elk you know, a few miles away that you can, you know, relocate to them. Or if, or if you just can't find them anywhere in there, you might have to move, you know, many miles to, to find them. Yeah. Do you, do you typically like to the, the backpack style hunting over like a, a truck camping or a day hunting? I do. Um, generally I'm, you know, I, I don't like seeing people when I hunt. So I like to get into remote, you know, go remote, pretty remote, you know, pretty far back in. And that could be a problem if you're, you know, it's become more of a, of a problem that further back in may not mean less people. Um, you know, I've, I've been hunting these, um, high basins a lot and at least on the opener. And it used to be, we never saw anybody, um, in these spots and more and more that's where, um, that's where guys want to be up on the ridges and the high basins, um, scoping things out. You know, a lot of, you know, Google Earth hunters might even see elk in these basins on, on Google Earth. And, and we had we had a couple guys last year that that's why they were in there. They saw the elk in there on, on Google Earth. So <laughs> That's funny. It, um, yeah, further back isn't always the best um, anymore. It's, it's good to be flexible. A lot of times they're pushed out of those high basins pretty quickly. And then you got to figure out, well, where do they go once they, once they get pushed? Mm-hmm. What, what do you typically find as far as with that when you say you bump them out or someone else did, you know, do they typically have certain train or pockets or kind of nasty holes they like to go into or what, what do you typically find with that? They do. And it's, you know, I've hunted this one area several years, well, like 10, 12 years now. So I've, and I don't hunt just one spot, but it's probably a 20 miles stretch of public land that I've hunted, um, different parts in it. And so now I kind of know if they're not in one basin, you know, check the next couple basins over. And if, if they've been pushed, then I've, I found kind of some of these thick, nasty, you know, heavily timbered spots that are hard to get to where they'll end, often end up, you know, second or third week a season. You can kind of count on them being there. They're harder to hunt. Um, you can't see them. Um, if they're, if you're bugling and talking, it can be great. Um, and you know, the, the spot they ended up last year was just so thick and nasty. It was hard to get a shot at them. I was getting in bow range on these nice bulls, but was, was struggling to get shots. And, um, you know, that's another thing, um, that was really different about whitetail hunting is with whitetails, I wouldn't be very aggressive in terms of, you know, if I saw a whitetail, say hundred yards away in the woods, I wouldn't like sneak over there and try and shoot them. You know, you'd, you typically are just setting up in a tree stand. If you see it, if you see the deer, you're not moving at all. You're just hoping that he comes close enough for a shot. Um, 
at least that's that's kind of the way I was. I would never really think about. I'd be too worried about scaring something away. And um, elk hunting, you, you need to kind of be aggressive. If you hear a if you hear a bull bugle, and you know when I first would say be elk hunting, and I if I would call a couple times and hear a bull bugle, I'd be like, oh man, here he comes, he's coming in, and like just get ready for a shot. And what I found out is most times they're not coming in. You know, they might just be bugling um, back at your call or they might, you might just hear them bugling out there and, you know, go after them. You can be pretty aggressive until you're that last maybe hundred yards or so. But um, yeah, I know a lot of people that have been out hunting and they've, they heard a bull bugling and they were, you know, set up on water or just set up in a good place to shoot and just expect them to come by. And, and um, you know, if I hear one bugling, I'm, I'm going after it when I get in, you know, I'm pretty, almost all the time, if you get the wind right, I can see them before they see me, as long as I slow down that last 100 yards or so. But, um, you know, get right in there and get the shot. Um, because, yeah, if they start walking and start moving, they can cover a lot of ground in a short time. And so, you know, what I, what I found in the early years is I'd have a lot of elk encounters, but not a lot of success there either. I would see them and not be aggressive enough moving in on them to get a shot or I'd be, I'd be moving along through the, through the woods and, you know, I just happen upon an elk and it would be like, you know, I'd happen upon a bull and it'd be kind of, you know, overwhelming. Like, ah, there's this big elk here. And, um, I wouldn't kind of be ready to, you know, I had to kind of tell myself later, if you see an elk, you know, draw aim and shoot um you know it's it's better to uh have a little movement and get that shot off even if you gotta you know go 10 feet to get in an opening and draw you just have a little bit more time there with an elk especially a big bull that's um say he's in the rut and he's all worked up um you can get by with with some noise some movement you know be aggressive get that shot yeah I mean, what you described there is, you know, a lot of the, the situations that I've screwed up on with that. And it's, it's funny, like you're talking about those dark, you know, timber, nasty, you know, holes. That's, you know, I, I can remember, you know, a few years ago that I was finding bulls in this one spot and I had them as close as 13 yards and couldn't get a shot because it was so thick and blowdowns and, and everything. And, and, you know, and, and looking back, I mean, I was, I, got a lot more aggressive by even my second year going into it but i wasn't aggressive enough with like when it came down to the shot process and you know i got into position but you know when i would see him coming and i'm realizing that i should be moved over just a little bit i didn't do anything about it and you know that you know maybe that would have worked maybe it didn't but it's you know it's easy to you know look back hindsight but it's they they don't give you a, a whole lot of time or leniency as far as uh when they have that that opening for the shot that's for sure yeah i think i had that mindset from whitetail hunting is like when i saw that whitetail on it you know if i could see his eyes he could see me i would i would freeze and wait for him to move into a position where i could you know draw my bow take the shot things like that and so that was my first um first reaction was freeze <laughs> when there's a bull elk standing there and sometimes i'd freeze and wait and be you know i don't know waiting for the right situation to draw and shoot and then he would t- 
take off. And then I would be like, why didn't I just shoot that thing? You know? <laughs> so I think definitely have it in your, you know, think through it in your head that when you're, if you got a big screaming bull coming in, it's, it's pretty easy to get, um, you know, buck fever and, and do the wrong thing there. So think through that scenario in your head, practice when you're shooting, you know, out in your, out in the range or shooting 3d course, all right, this is a big bull just stepped in, you know, what am I going to do? You know, think through it. So you're quickly drawn, aiming, taking the shot, um, move into the position needed to make the shot, you know, have it be prepared for that, you know, excitement when that bull shows up close. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, one thing that's always helped me with, even with white tails was shooting an actual 3d target. And then kind of visualizing it. I know it's not, you know, the same situation, but kind of going through that visualization. And then once you see that and kind of setting up the target a little bit, you know, different angles and just kind of, you know, going through that in my head. So this year I picked up one of those, uh, solo targets of a big elk. It's like a 2d, um, target that, that you basically pin on the front of your other target and it's just, it's literally the size of an elk and everything else. And I love shooting that it's, you know, it's, it's the, the visual, the visualization and, and everything else with it. And I, I find that, you know, and when you shoot it, you can kind of see, you know, where the vitals are. And I've been, you know, trying to study the anatomy of it and, and everything else. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, helps out a little bit with, with, uh, that when it comes to, you know, this year hunting them. Yeah, that's what I found is you kind of need to have your plan before that hap- before that happens. You know, decide, all right, what, what shot angles am I going to take? Am I going to take a frontal or not? Am I just going to shoot a broadside? Um, you know, have think through the scenarios, have it planned in your head, because when that, when that moment arises, you, you don't have a lot of time to think, and often it's, it's exciting, and, you know, it's hard to think. <laughs> it's hard to think through everything in that short time so you know have a plan and one thing i found is that with altitude it makes it worse and i know what i found is um when i started hunting the high country i was camping about at this typical camp i was going to it's about eleven thousand three hundred feet and the first day or two um i you know i wouldn't i would have some effect from altitude and for me it was really just i kind of lose critical thinking where um, I just, you know, there was, op- I had opportunities on bulls that first day or so I'm like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I do that? And I realized that I kind of, I kind of was losing a little bit of the critical thinking, um, in that, with that high altitude. And that's, that's one effect of altitude is, is, um, you know, you don't, you don't think so straight compared to being a little lower. I, I found that if I camp it, Below ten thousand, I, I just have no effect. Um, or a lot of times I camp at ten or ten five, but if I'm up at eleven, just a little bit, a little bit lightheaded, just a little bit out of it that first day or two, and then I kind of adjust to it. But um, yeah, I was finding that it was having a little effect on me that I wasn't realizing. Yeah, no, that's that that makes sense. I mean, I definitely altitude with me i mean it affects it seems like everything but <laughs> you know and then and, and sometimes i don't notice it as much at first but then you know as the the day goes on in the first couple of days there you know I'm, I'm wore out and i'm tired and i just like in my head just 
feels like it hurts <laughs> and then definitely, you know, goes along with, you know, thinking and everything else, decision making, stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'm sure with, you know, when you're practicing those, you know, scenarios and you might encounter that helps, you know, similar to when you're practicing, you know, shooting, uh, you know, under pressure or anything else, whether that's a 3D tournament or what, or, you know, something similar to that that can, you know, directly correlate over to when you're under pressure, kind of doing it out of, you know, habit of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, another thing is, um, calling, I, you know, I, I went to some seminars, heard some different people talk on calling. And then for a while there, I was fairly aggressive on setting up and calling and, and really I call less and less, um, every year. And, you know, it's, it depends on what type of hunting you want to do, but often I want to go into an area, figure out if the elk are there or not, figure out what they're doing, um, without even making a call. I just think you're, you're just alerting them that something's there. Maybe it's an elk, maybe it's a hunter or whatever. Um, and you know, you always have the, you're always risking when you're calling as you're going that, you could be blowing something out. It could hear you get nervous. Just, just move out of there. Um, I like to go in and figure out what's going on with the elk first. Um, and you know, that's assuming I have some time, um, to hunt. If I'm, if I'm there for a week, I'll go in, hopefully figure out if there's elk or not there and day one. Um, if there are, and I'm, if you're not aggressive, you can, let, let's say they're going into an open basin and you can see them moving, moving up into the open, um, to feed and moving down into the timber, you might be able to hunt those same elk for multiple days, keeping the wind right, get in, get in for a shot and, um, and even take an elk and not, not blow them out. Um, whereas if you're aggressively calling, it's often, it's either going to happen right then or it's not. And often it's not. Um, and you know, people are going to have different opinions on this and, if, if I more have like two days to hunt, I need to get something done. Then I'm, then I'm probably covering miles, bugling to locate things, moving in on them and being super aggressive, not caring if I blow them out, you know, I'll just hike a couple miles to the next, you know, elk kind of a thing. Um, but it, yeah, in general, I think a lot of guys are just going into calling too much. And if, um, yeah, you're kind of pushing the elk to do something. Often, if you're calling and being aggressive, you're kind of pushing them to either come in or, or leave, and a lot of times they're going to leave. So it's, uh, yeah, for a lot of guys I'd recommend, you know, don't call with, without some purpose to it. Mm-hmm. When So with your strategy, with, with that being said, when you're going to locate them, are you – relying on looking through glass a lot of times or are you waiting to you know hear them bugle find fresh sign or what's kind of your strategy with that yeah and it kind of depends on the part of the season and where they're at you know a lot of times um their area i hunt in the you know the in a couple weeks here when season opens it's been really warm. They're going to be up really high and there's a lot of, you know, above timberline, even there's a lot of, um, place where you can spot them. So in those, those I'm going to be, you know, first light, I'm going to be at a place where I can see ways and, and, um, good chance I'll be able to spot some or, or keep moving through over the next ridge, over the next ridge until I can, 
you know, spot something. Um, and because that's open area where you can see them. Um, if it's more areas where you can't see them, then, then it's, uh, you know, getting the wind right, moving, um, you know, looking for fresh sign, um, or even, or even elk, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it kind of depends on the terrain, but a lot of times it is looking, looking for elk themselves if it's open enough to see them. Otherwise, looking for fresh sign, checking the water sources, um, springs, wallows, things like that, see if they've been getting hit. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I was wondering there. And, and as far as like, as the season goes on, you said it seems like they kind of are from pressure and everything more in that dark timber rather than, you know, still coming out in some of those meadows or the, the high basins. Yeah. You know, this is, this is over the counter area in Colorado. So that's, that's the case there. Um, you know, it's going to vary by, by what you're hunting and how much pressure there is, but that's what I've seen after that first week, unless it's a, a really remote place that you know nobody's found and i don't know of any of those anymore <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times those open basins are only good for a few days and then the elk are are um pushed out of them sometimes they'll move from one basin to the next but a lot of times uh, they get wise to it and they're not out in the open um very much after that okay that's uh that's that's some good information there and and like some of the they that I've hunted in over the counter in Colorado and it was high country type stuff like that and I had some intel from people you know showing opening day and even a couple of days before season all these elk up in the high country and everything and you know I went as early as the beginning of the second week and didn't see that at all i might see one pass through just above timberline but not you know actually going out from like a feed to bed pattern in daylight anyways yeah my experience has been after after the first week or even a lot of times even after the first few days or so depending on how much pressure there is in your area but they're not in the they're not above tree line in the open basins they're they're in some cover and some timber and they're and they're moving and they're moving around as, as there's pressure in those, you know, there's, yeah. And, and that's why a lot of times, e- even if they were in a spot a week ago, they might not be there now. So that's when often you got to put on some miles and, and find them. And, and, you know, in Colorado, starting that second week into the third week is when there's just more bugling activity going on. And then, um, you know, ideally you're hearing them being able to move in on them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a perfect situation in my opinion is get a bull worked up that he's just bugling by himself without me doing anything. And I just sneak in on him and put an arrow in him. I mean, that's, that's, um, you know, that's kind of best case. And that's what often why that, you know, a couple of weeks into season can be better. They're in a the dark timber. They kind of got to be talking to find them. Um, you know, unless you're just pretty good at figuring out where they're going to be at and, and, um, you know, sneaking in on them. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to calling either. Um, I'm just saying that when you're calling, you're often pressuring them to, to do something. And so it's not, it's not my first thing to do when I go into an area, but, mm-hmm. um, if I'm, if I kind of know they're in the, they're in a timber, I don't know if this, they're in this basin or the next one, I might be hitting the ridges before first light, even maybe an hour before and throwing out a locating bugle and just figuring out where they're at. Um, and trying to get a position to, to move on them at 
first light when they're still up and around feeding. Yeah. It, and it's interesting, you know, with, um, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of it comes down to hunting pressure and stuff, but you know, it, when you're laying in your tent at night, especially if like when, when I backpack into an area, you can hear them bugling all through the night and then it's just like silence, you know, once it, <laughs> once uh, the daylight comes. So I guess, you know, going in even an hour before like that, locating them can really be beneficial for, you know, giving you an idea of what direction to head. Yeah, it can. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago I had them going by my tent at 3 a.m. bugling and, I got dressed and went out and followed them. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> because that's what they were doing. They were bugling up until an hour before light and then stopping. And um, then I was having trouble finding them. So I, I followed them far enough back, but I figured out where they were going and bedding. And it was down in this steep, deep, um, you know, dark timber. But um, that's how I had to figure it out that time. That was a, it was an odd year. They were getting a lot of pressure. Um, and it varies where I go. Um, for many years, I never saw anybody. And then some years there's a couple groups in there and, uh, and then sometimes not. So it's, it's good to be able to, um, you know, have a plan B or C if there's guys in your area or the elk just aren't there, um, be, be ready to move and go find some elk. Yeah. So when you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, you made a, a shot on a bull and you know, the, the broadhead had failed with you and, and that kind of was your start to, you know, coming up with iron will and everything. So how long ago was that? Yeah, that was in 2004. So that was, I think it was my, I think it was my fourth year bow hunting for elk. It was, you know, as I said, I, I made a lot of mistakes early on. It took it took me a while to get things figured out enough just to get in there uh, for a shot. And so, you know, my fourth year elk hunting worked really hard to get that shot opportunity, a uh, nice bull, um, you know, broadside shot. You know, I just shot a little bit forward and hit the shoulder blade. I think it hit the back edge of the shoulder blade and just got very little penetration. It, it appeared that that broadhead just failed on that. And, and I spent a, the week looking for that bowl and was just really devastated by it. And so that's one of the things I, I learned too, is that, man, those elk are so much bigger than a whitetail. Um, and you know, looking at, looking at the broadhead, you know, with a critical kind of mechanical engineering approach after that, I could see all these failure, all this potential failure to it. And, um, was really kicking myself for not, for not choosing a better broadhead, you know, at the time. And, so I spent, I spent a couple of years where I was buying a lot of broadheads. I was reading the research out there, the testing that had been done, um, and testing a lot of broadheads myself. Um, I was shooting through, you know, elk shoulder blades, um, in different materials as well. And after a couple of years, I kind of, you know, I, I learned a few things like a, you know, a durable two blade head was out far out penetrating, um, like a chisel point three three blade head, which is kind of what I've been typically using, um, up until then. But then I also found that, um, there was something I didn't quite like about every one. It had some, you know, some kind of weak point to them. So that's why I started designing my own broadheads. I was a mechanical engineer doing product development for a company already. Um, 
And so designing components, mechanisms, doing the, doing the analysis, the prototype testing was, was what I did in my day job every day. And so I was just applying that then to, to Broadhead. So I would, I would design, design a Broadhead, got it built. Um, brothers and friends used them that year. We'd get all the, all the results. And, um, and then I was doing a lot of testing on the side, just penetration testing, things like that. And we'd see where, where were the weak points and, um, iterate on the design and do another one the following year. And spent about seven years doing that really before I came up with the, the final design. Um, and it was really this whole time, it was really just for myself, my friends and family to have just the ultimate, broadhead and I was really going for max penetration on elk to be able to get through that shoulder blade and then go through the vitals, um, get a pass through shot, um, stay sharp through there and get a quick kill rather than have that, you know, terrible failure when you hit a shoulder blade. That was really my goal. And, um, and yeah, I feel like I, I really achieved that with our design. We've had, I've had over 30 guys, I think now tell me they've got a pass through on an elk, including one or both shoulder blades. So, that's uh that's great that's really what i was trying to do there yeah okay and so what what made you decide that like all right i can take this idea and these things that i'm you know building for friends and family to be able to you know turn that into a a business yeah so i i really wasn't too interested in doing that i you know i had a good engineering job i um i really enjoy the design analysis product testing um but i was not a sales marketing guy at all so i didn't um you know i didn't really plan to go forward with it for that reason and then i met um i met this guy eric whiting up in the mountains we were both actually in this backcountry basin in a wilderness area um hunting and you know at first i was i wasn't happy that he was in my spot but we ended up we ended up becoming friends, and then a couple years later, we actually hunted together, and we took we took two bulls in back um, back seven miles in, and helped each other with the packouts, um, which were brutal, but it kind of solidified our friendship. And then he saw he saw me take two uh, two elk with that broadhead, and one of the elk was a fifty four yard shot, um, complete pass through, went ten yards and stuck in the dirt past it. The broadhead was still sharp. I could shave hair with it. I put it right back in my quiver, and I shot a big bull with it um, later. And after he saw that, he, he thought, man, you really should take that to market. And um, and I knew he had a marketing background. You know, that's what he'd been doing. He was a, a younger guy. And, you know, I just said, hey, if you want to take the sales and marketing side of this on, let's let's do it. And so that was it. We, we co-founded the company. Um we spent um, quite a bit of time getting it off the ground, and and um, Eric, he's he then after you know two years of no paychecks and lots of work, he uh, he has some good job work opportunities um, that he decided to go after um, in marketing. So he's not um, he's not owner of the company anymore, but um, he still helps me out. We still hunt together. Still a really good guy, but really that's that's why it came to market is um, I had somebody that. Uh, knew the sales marketing side of it and kind of prodded me that, Hey, this is an awesome product. People are, people will want this. And, you know, I did feel like I agreed. I think it was just a step up from what anybody's used to on durability and penetration. Um, just spent a lot of time, went through five different 
blade steels, spent a lot of time on the heat treat process. Our sharpening, we got probably 10x better in sharpness over the years. Um, so I really felt confident, yeah, this could help a lot of people and um, decided to uh, yeah, leave my corporate job and, and launch the company. Okay. So there wasn't like a, a transitional period for you where you were doing both. You just kind of went all in. It was, um, you know, I started it before I left my full-time job, but then I had some, so when I left my full-time job, I still had some side jobs kind of, um, to do. And, and really I helped, I kept onto those for a while just to pay the bills through the, through the time, um, when the company wasn't paying, paying the bills, but <laughs> so it's, it's been my full-time job for two and a half years, but I had, I had a few side jobs until, until recently I've, I've, uh, you know, I don't need to do those anymore. Well, that's, that's great. I, I always like hearing that, that side of it and how kind of the, the business, you know, of a, a small company, you know, grows and, and does that. So that's interesting. And, and since, I got to to meet Eric back in January and and have you know had a relationship with him ever since and he seems like a really great guy from the you know the marketing sales side of things. Yeah, he's a great guy. I'm really really thankful. He uh, he co-founded the company with me. He's a for a marketing guy. He's he's honest as the day is long, and he is really a really a good guy. Um, so yeah, he. He, he helps me with marketing still, um, and we're, we're planning to hunt together here in a couple of weeks. So really good guy for sure. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, so when, so with your broadhead, so you were talking a little bit, you know, about the sharpness and, and the steel and everything, but what, what are some of the, you know, some of the other features that really, you know, stand out and make that, make your head, you know, kind of different from some of the other ones that they have on the market? Yeah, so our um, our blade material is an A2 tool steel, and so A2 is a steel used for metal stamping dies and punches. It's it's um, you know it's used to cut other metals, so it's it's unique in that it can have an, a very sharp edge and excellent edge retention, along with very high impact toughness. So that's um, that's one thing that's kind of unique about broadhead blades. You know, a lot of knife there's a lot of good knife steels out there um, because knife blades, they just don't have that high speed impacts going on. So steels that work well there just don't work quite as well for broadheads. Um, so that's the reason for tool steel. And, you know, 90 plus percent of the broadheads out there are just using uh, a 420 stainless steel for the broadhead blades. And that's a pretty low end blade steel. You know, if you talk to a, a custom knife maker, you know, they wouldn't really even consider 420 a blade steel. They they would want something that you could achieve a higher hardness to it. Um, but it's very low cost. You can get a decent um, a decent edge on it and have you know a decent kind of impact toughness. But it's really nowhere near what you can achieve with a premium premium blade steel. Um, typical hardness on 420 stainless steel is going to be in that 50 Rockwell C range and what hardness gives you is, um, so hardness is a measure of, you know, hardness will correlate to the kind of the compressive strength at the surface. It's measured by denting in that surface and seeing how far you dent with a certain force. Um, the reason that's important is in, in a knife blade is that having that high hardness, you can 
you can grind it and hone it to a much finer edge because it has that strength to it that you can have that very fine edge. Um, and then high hardness will make it take a long time to wear away that edge. So a typical broadhead blade, once you get through the hide, often it's pretty dull. And if you go through the hide in a rib, it's there's no edge left really. And so it's when it's pushing through the animal, it's it's tearing instead of slicing. And and you know, I'm not saying you can't kill an animal with that. You certainly can. But um with what I wanted is a broadhead that would go through hide, rib, even a shoulder blade, and keep that razor sharp edge and slice all the way through, give you that exit hole, and then by slicing all the way through, you know. Um, broadheads kill by bleeding, so you really want to have as much slicing, bleeding as you can. So by slicing all the way through, much quicker kills, often they're dead in sight, um, and then you get that exit hole for for good blood trail. Um, so, you know, so the blade steel is, it's a premium blade steel where most broadheads you're just not going to get that. Um, and it's a it's a very high impact blade steel, so even even if you hit, say, a leg bone, or some some you know heavy bone impact, it's not going to break where most blades will, mm-hmm. especially other premium steels that are stainless steel like four forty C or S thirty V one fifty four CM. You know I've I've tested prototype tested a number of those steels and you can get a great edge with them, but they just don't hold up to heavy bone impact um, with those. And so that's kind of the blade material, and then on the ferrule material. You know, a lot of a lot of ferrule materials out there are seventy seventy five aluminum um, or three or three stainless. What I found with aluminum is that if if you're hitting bone, you know, with bone impact, they're they're typically bending. They're often they're breaking, um, but m- most most of the time they're at least bending. So you lose an energy. You're kind of redirecting that broadhead. You're not going to get the penetration. Um, and if they bend all the way over and break, then you're really not getting much penetration at all. And and so, and even 303 stainless isn't that much stronger um, to, to compared to like a hardened stainless steel. Um, so anyway, we use a grade five titanium that has a great strength to weight ratio in our lighter broadheads. And we use a, uh, a hardened stainless steel in our, in our heavier broadheads to really have that high, high strength to the ferrule and um, maintain that you know, don't bend, keep that energy driving through the animal for max penetration. Okay. And, and you know, what's funny, like when I, uh, so for the listeners, I have been shooting iron wheels now, this will be my second year. And when I first, you know, got them, my whole family's big into archery hunting and I was showing them the heads and everything. And my uncle's a machinist. So he recognized the A2 and he couldn't believe that, you know, that was being used in a broadhead. And he explained to me kind of the similar, you know, you know, the, I guess, components of it and why, you know, some of the stuff with it and how hard it is and the edge retention and all that stuff. And it was really interesting to me. And, and I'm, you know, with, you know, with that being said, I'm guessing, or, or maybe I'm wrong, but that, you know, other companies may have not, you know, looked into that was because, they were trying to hit a certain price point, and when you try to hit a certain price point, you sacrifice the the quality and durability of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I think other most other manufacturers are, are selling into retail, and then there's some big uh, 
you know, selling into retail, there's some big um, markups through that. And so when you're, if you're selling a three pack for 30 or 40 bucks, um, you really only have a couple of dollars to put into the whole materials manufacturing processes. And, you know, I don't blame manufacturers. That's just kind of the model that's evolved over the years and what most hunters expect. You know, they expect to pay 10 bucks or so for a broadhead. And, and in general, I think people have been okay with them being a, I shoot it once and, and it's damaged, you know, it's bent or, or broken. And, um, I think that's just been the mindset. And the problem I see with that is that, well, when did that thing bend or break? You know, did it even make it through the rib, um, before that happened or, or shoulder blade edge or, or whatever? Um, you know, I want something that's going to go all the way through there and not bend or break and stay, stay strong. And so I've, and I've never, like I said, I was planning to make this for me, and I just wanted to have the ultimate broadhead. So I went through and, and picked, you know, I went through five different steels until I found the one that I felt really was doing the best job um, for that really sharp edge and edge retention along with impact toughness. And then I spent a lot of time on the, the heat treat process, um, the sharpening process. And so our, our steps are, our process steps are very long and involved and expensive. And if there wasn't, uh, if the, the lead engineer wasn't running the company, it, it wouldn't be going this way, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from, from working at many other companies doing product development for 25 years. Um, I'd often come to the table with, okay, this is the best material, best design, best process to have the ultimate product. And it was, I was always pushed back on, well, what about this lower cost option here? We know it's not quite as good, but we'll make more money. And it was always a struggle to try and get product improvements through, you know, through marketing, sales, upper management. And that's something I always wanted to do when I had my own, you know, my own products, my own company is all the decisions are made based on maximum performance. And then I'm pricing it where I just need to, to, um, to have the company, um, you know, keep, keep going on, you know, be successful. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's, it's, it's funny. And it's probably a good thing that you did that just, you know, without the plan of it being a company. So, I mean, I know with your engineering mind, you may not have, you know, went to try to take shortcuts if this was going to be, you know, uh, a company from the beginning, but when you're doing it just for yourself, you, like you said, you want the best of, you know, everything to make that ultimate broadhead. And that's, you know, is what, you know, was the end result with it. And I, I think that's, you know, it, it's funny, like I said, I had experiences with it. So I shot two animals with the S 25 broadheads last year of, from iron will. And the first one, I shot a Turkey on the ground that went through the Turkey and into a, a giant pine tree and penetrated about three inches into the pine tree after passing through the Turkey. And I, st- I had, a, I literally cut the broadhead out and uh, to be able to get it and then the second one I went right through the like the the leg bone of a, a doe in late season and it was extremely impressive literally snapped the the leg right in half and uh, you know it wasn't the absolute perfect shot but you know when you off by a few inches that can happen and and that uh it was just extremely impressive and that's that's why you know whether it's whitetail or elk why i chose to uh 
you know, want to shoot ahead like this. I'd, I've had, you know, the, the stories I've only, I only ever use expandable broadheads for one year and had it fail. But, um, then, you know, and even with other fixed blades, I, I, like you said, like what most people do is I knew as soon as I shot them once an animal, they were done. Like I was never going to use that head again. And, uh, they kind of just went in a box and that was it. And I got more, but with these, you know, the ones I shot last year, they're, they're in my quiver still. And, uh, the only one that I damaged at all was because I hit it with another iron will <laughs> and I, and I dented the, the one piece of it and that was it, you know? And today I, I was talking to you, Bill, on the phone before we started recording, I was shooting my heads and, and I didn't tell you this part, but the first group that I had, uh, I normally don't shoot two at the same spot because of this reason but i shot two and i'm like wow that was a great group you know and i went up and i'm like i'm lucky i didn't cut you know any of my fletchings went back and uh moved back another 10 yards and went to shoot again and the second arrow just went flying just dropped right out of the air well apparently i cut two of the fletchings and never even knew it and they were and they blew off as soon as i shot <laughs> so it was just it, it was uh it was funny to to see that but the, I mean, the heads and up, I'm going to kind of steal your thunder here a little bit, but with, uh, when it comes to shooting with, uh, you know, a well-tuned bow, I mean, they fly like a field point. It's, it's pretty amazing. You know, I'm still doing a little bit, uh, just micro tuning with my bow, you know, currently at the time of recording this, this is, you know, beginning August or I guess closer to the middle of August now, but, uh, it last year when I had it on my bow last year, it was the, my effective range was 70 yards and it would, I would, you couldn't tell if I screwed on a field point or a broadhead and it still hit the same spot. Nice. Yeah. That was another thing. You know, as I said, originally I was going for max penetration on, on elk, but I also do a lot of mule deer hunting as well. And it just seems like my typical shot on mule deer has been that 50 to 65 yard range. And so Another goal throughout throughout this development process was to have something that would shoot well at that distance. And and over the years, my broadhead blade um, it got it got shorter, um, so it got a little more compact, and it's got a, a tanto tip. So that there's a second angle at the tip, and what that does is increases the strength of the tip, but it also makes it shorter overall length. So you have less planing from that. And and I did. I did, um, you know, computer modeling of the flow over the broadhead too to try and reduce the drag, um, computational fluid dynamics modeling, and I really feel like the in the end the broadhead we got it's it's a great flying uh, long range head. Um, you know, I shoot I shoot daily with targets out to 100 yards, and the hit right with with field points for me um, with a little tuning to your bow, I think they're gonna they're gonna shoot well for most people. Yeah, yeah, and that's like so like with with me, I mean, I hadn't, uh, I was struggling with target panic for most of the the summer. So I was just blank bail shooting and it took me until, you know, a month ago to actually start shooting targets again. So I'm finally, I'm behind where I normally am with shooting broadheads, but finally, you know, got around to it and, and I hadn't made any adjustments other than, you know, when I just originally paper tuned my bow 
to it and they're just shooting a little bit to the right and that's just going to take a little bit of you know micro adjusting my rest and it should pull them right back in and and you know a matter of minutes and be and be ready to go sounds good yeah you were mentioning um hunting turkeys and and deer and they're definitely overkill for turkeys (laughs) (laughs) a lot of guys ask me aren't these overkill for whitetail and i mean yeah they are but I mean, to me, there kind of is no overkill. What it what it does for you is it opens up shot opportunities. You know what what happens if you're shoot a little far forward and hit that leg bone or hit that shoulder bone or knuckle. Um, the broadhead's probably going to get through those and get to the vitals for you. Or if you've got a, a straight down shot and and you go into the the spine, um, we've had a number of guys pass right through the spine, actually sever it in two. Um, Tony Tony Treach's mule deer buck last year in colorado it was a over 200 inch buck he shot straight down off a cliff into it and um severed the the backbone in two and went down into the vitals and killed it and you know a a mechanical or or a lesser broadhead that would have bent or broken um he might have lost that buck you know so i think yeah they're they're kind of overkill but then it opens up shot opportunities for you you know i've taken my last two mule deer have been been frontal shots and in that case, I like having the margins for error. If if they move a little bit and you hit that shoulder blade, I mean, I know it's going to go through there with my setup. Um, so I just feel like it gives you a margin for error when things don't go perfectly. Yeah, and then they don't always go perfectly no matter how good of a shot you are. The animals can move or, you know, whatever the situation that's thrown at you. I know with – so going back to the, the whitetail thing, my – my dad does a lot of ground hunting and kind of still hunting and, and he'll during the rut, he'll move to these clear cuts and, you know, get aggressive with calling. And he shot, you know, a bunch of bucks frontal on the ground, you know, going through. And that's where a broad head like that and would have that max penetration to go all the way through that cavity and, you know, essentially come out the, the back leg, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's that's what my last two mule deer have been just like that, where one was a straight frontal and it came out um yeah, near the back leg and another one was a slight quartering on and I actually ended up placing it right through the shoulder blade, but it, it got a full pass through, came out just in front of the hind leg there and it was a quick kill. So I mean I, I hesitate a bit to to recommend that shot to people. I think you need to understand um, you know, I've got a a 70 pound bow, a 30 inch draw, 500 grain arrow, you know, you have to have the right setup for it. Um, but, um, yeah, I think on a whitetail sized animal, it's, it's going through. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's for sure. And like, it's like you said, if it's not everything, you know, is, is going to be perfect. So like for me, that was the, you know, determining factor with it is I'd want to have the best opportunity possible at that and and for me to do that i want to make sure I, my broadhead isn't going to fail you know if for any situation with it i try to you know my arrow i think it weighs 486 grains and you know i'm shooting a 70 pound bow with only a 27 and a half inch draw so mine's a little bit shorter but even with that you know my bow is not extremely fast but i it just out penetrates like it it penetrates great and that's, that's what I want. You know, that's, you know, most, uh, you know, out West it's a little bit different where I can have some longer shots, but you know, even for whitetails in, you know, the East here, 
or wherever you're hunting whitetails at and you're having a 15, 20 yard shot, I like having that, you know, that, that, that margin for error being, you know, a lot smaller with, uh, you know, worrying about your, your setup and everything with that. Right. And, you know, I like to aim kind of in that golden triangle, I like to aim, aim forward, um, you know, at that crease or a little bit ahead of that for, for whitetails or elk as well. I just know that they die a lot faster if you hit in there versus hitting, hitting back a bit. So, you know, when I aim in that area, you're just close to bones. You're, you just, uh, it doesn't have to move very much before you could you could touch one, and I like to be able to get right through them. Yeah. So with um, so with the broadheads, you know, that's kind of been the the foundation of you know when I first heard of Iron Will and everything. But you've added a, a little bit more here in the in the last few years, and the one specifically that comes to mind is your new knife, and I believe that's just released this year, right? Uh, it is, yeah, yeah. I've been working on it for a couple of years, but I wanted to. So I do a lot of backcountry backpack hunting, and I wanted uh, a really light knife that would would hold an edge, get me all the way through an elk, you know, skinning, quartering, deboning, um, even caping, with with just one knife. And what I was I was having trouble finding one that was both ultra light and a premium blade steel that would hold an edge really well. So. And I don't really like the replacement blades. I mean, I, it's nice to have, not have to sharpen anything and have it be sharp, but I've just, um, you know, I've broken a couple, had a lot of friends cut themselves when they, when they broke a blade, you know, going around bones, things like that. And, um, so to me, I, I like a little sturdier knife. So what I did is made a knife using the same A2 tool steel, the same heat treat, hardening, sharpening process we do for the broadheads, um, in this ultralight knife, it's uh, it just weighs one ounce, and um, it has a couple of top sharpened edges that are unique near the tip, and you can use those top edges to to make all the hide cuts. You know, drip the hide with that, and then use the belly of the knife to to skin and debone, and that way the knife stays sharp a really long time. I've actually been able to do two animals without touching it up, um, but I think for most guys they'll be able to get through like completely through an elk, um, with it. And for just one ounce, I think it's, it's, I think it's about the lightest option for being able to do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. And with the, you know, I've used replacement blades, um, you know, for the last few years. And the, one of the biggest struggles I've seen with them is when a blade, you know, gets dull or breaks is trying to change out that blade too. I've cut myself just trying to, you know, snap it out and put another one in, (laughs) Right, right. And, uh, you know, then you're adding, you know, you're having to bring extra blades and making sure you have those and, you know, everything else. And, you know, each has their, you know, their their positives and their negatives with it. But I, I just thought that was a, a really interesting design. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of guys don't want to sharpen um, knives and some guys are great at it and a lot of guys aren't. And so, I, you know, I understand that. I was trying to to make a knife where you could for sure get through an animal and not have to sharpen it in the back country. Um, but we also sell this, uh, little carbide sharpener and, um, Aaron Snyder actually pushed me to, to, to come out with one of those. It's, it's the right blade angle for both the broadhead blades and our new ultralight knife. And you just, you just pull it through there, just light pressure, um, a number, a number of strokes until you're shaving hair again. And it's, it's really easy to use. So, 
and that only weighs a half ounce. So that's not a bad setup either to have the ultralight knife and then a little carbide sharpener. And then, you know, you can get through multiple animals, you know, throughout the season with it that way. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and, uh, hopefully that's what, you know, that, you know, something that everyone needs to run into is having to have to cut up multiple animals on a trip, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'll, uh, I always have a couple tags if, if I can. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear you there. So Bill, is there anything else that, that you want to talk about on iron wool side of things? You know, the only other, uh, the other new thing that we've come out with recently is some uh, different components for the ends of the arrows. What I, what I was seeing with doing a lot of impact testing on, um, on our broadheads, shooting through heavy bones, things like that, that occasionally you'd get the side impact to where it would, would start damaging the arrow, um, you know, either bend components or break out of the carbon. And so for myself, I started making these one-inch hardened steel sleeves that go over the end of the arrow to reinforce that. And I was just making them for myself for testing to make my arrows last longer. And enough guys saw them, wanted, wanted to, me to make some forum that I decided to just launch it as a product. So we call them uh, impact collars and it's a one inch hardened steel sleeve and there's a little flange over the end. So it covers the end of your arrow and really reinforces it. And they're meant to be used with, with hit inserts. Um, and you can use those on 204 diameter or 166 diameter arrows. So, you know, Easton axis, um, or injections for instance, but there's also, you can use them in, you know, the black Eagle, the gold tip, um, TKOs, um, you know, there's a, you can really use them in any of the 204, 166 diameter. So the reason we decided to make the hit inserts ourselves is, um, you know, most of them out there are aluminum or brass. Um, so it's kind of soft. If you take a hard impact, you can start damaging that insert and have it not, not spin true. And by having hardened steel, um, the threads are much stronger, two to three times stronger. And then you add that impact collar, one inch hardened steel sleeve over the end. Uh, now you've greatly strengthened the end of that arrow so that not only do you have a real strong broadhead, now you have a strong, you know, connection system. Um, and I like the hit insert because it, the, the shank of that broadhead then aligns directly to the ID of the arrow. So if you're buying, you know, high quality arrow that, that spins true, um, you know, at our broadhead that's aligned directly to that ID, you, you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to have a great spinning um, arrow broadhead combination then. And, and then you've kind of got this laminated, almost um, hardened steel, carbon fiber, hardened steel uh, layers kind of bonding that, you know, connecting that all together. I, I really like that system. I've been using that myself for years and, and that's become really popular. Um, we've just started selling that the last few months as well. Yeah, my uh, my elk hunting partner picked that up, and he was showing me the components to it and everything. And he put them on his Eastern Axis arrows, and has been really happy with them so far. Yep, I I have one set up that's Eastern Axis and one that's carbon injection. And you know, I've got some I've got some black eagles and, and gold tips and vaps and everything here too that I'll be testing. But um, I was shooting uh, Total Archery Challenge with that. Um, the four millimeter system that, and with the hardened steel insert, hardened steel impact collar, and we make hardened steel field points now as well. Um, I, I shot, so three different locations. I think I shot 10, 10 rounds total. And I, I lost one arrow clean, but 
I didn't break any. Um, the even though I missed a couple times, put into the kind of the rocks and dirt, that system held up. Um, so for four millimeter arrow, that was that was impressive to me. Is that I could I could hit some you know smaller rocks and rocks in the dirt and and logs and things like that and have the arrow survive. So. Yeah, especially at Total Archery Challenge, which is the the graveyard of arrows, you know. <laughs> it is. It is. There was thousands of arrows uh, sacrificed on those weekends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, yeah, I like I said, I'm I really like the the components and and one of the other things I don't know if you had mentioned it or not, but with uh, the the broadheads, and I'm not sure about your other components, but you offer a lifetime guarantee on those as well. We do, yeah. If you bend or if you bend or break anything, we'll we'll replace it. So, yep, there's a lifetime warranty on it. And we 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 did that because um, really, what I saw is shooting through sh- shooting through bone, shooting through animals. It just doesn't damage it with that with that hardened steel or titanium ferrule and that tool steel blade. Um, it's going to make it through there without bending or breaking. Um, and so, yeah, and even if you do shoot through there and, and hit a rock or something, we we um, we cover that as well in the warranty. And you know, I, especially early on, it's it's a high price point. It's three three broadheads for ninety nine ninety five. It's a lot more than people are used to spending. Um, and a majority of that is just our materials and manufacturing processes. But to to try and more justify that to people, we give a lifetime guarantee. And I think a lot of people are finding that it's. It may actually be cheaper for them that way. You know, we, we had one guy put one through six deer and it's still using it. So, you know, if you can reuse it um, over the years, it may it may save money over buying disposables. Yeah, no, that that makes complete sense. And and I, I found with my hunting gear is I'd rather, you know, save a little money to to be able to buy, you know, a higher quality, more of a, you know, a buy once cry once kind of mentality and uh that's that's been at least the way i've done it yeah you know my feeling with bow hunting is there's there's just so many things that can go wrong especially like elk hunting in the back country it's just so hard to get that shot opportunity so many so many ways you can mess it up um i don't want the broadhead failure to be one of them you know i want to and you know 33 bucks for a broadhead it's it's a lot compared to what people are used to paying, but it's not a lot of money for what's on the line at that, at that moment in my, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I put so much time and I know so many other people do into that and preparing and all that stuff for that one opportunity. That's uh, the last thing that I want to fail. Yeah, for sure. So, Bill, do you have anything else that you want to kind of leave the listeners with or any, uh, you know, last thoughts? No, that's about it. Um, you know, if, if people are looking at elk hunting, I'd, I'd recommend. Um, I guess one thing that I should mention is that, you know, elk hunting, elk are just a bigger animal, thicker hide. You know, elk or moose, say, you know, bigger animals, thicker hide, heavier bones. Um, you know, consider stepping up your broadheads for that. And one thing, one thing that's important, um, you know, mechanicals work fine for a lot of people on deer and, and a lot of people use them for elk as well. But in the testing I've done, it takes a tremendous amount of force to open up those blades and push it through an elk hide or a moose hide. Um, and so, you know, what I found 
it can be over 10 times as much force compared to a cut on contact broadhead. Um, and in deer, it probably doesn't matter. You probably, you maybe have enough energy to get through anyways. Um, or maybe not, but on a deer and elk, I think getting that penetration is getting that max penetration is important. And if you, cause you know, halfway through an elk, just taking out one lung, it's not going to die. It's going to go a long way. So it's probably not going to die that day and you may not find it. So I think, um, consider a durable cut on contact broadhead for that situation um, just to get that max penetration. And if people have questions about broadheads or setups, um, they can, they can, uh, our website, ironwelloutfitters.com. There's a contact us form that our phone number's on there. Um, they can follow us on Instagram at ironwelloutfitters and, you know, fire away questions. And we'll try and help you out. Okay, great. Is there any any other place that you can find information on Iron Will and uh, anything else, whether it's social media, YouTube, anything like that? Yeah, Instagram is probably um, a good way to contact us at, at Iron Will Outfitters is our Instagram page. And then you can see kind of our new products that come out and a lot of testimonials, things like that. Um, there's a lot of information on our webpage, which is Iron Will Outfitters. Dot com that has a lot of our material information, our different product information. So check that out. Go to our features page and you can learn more about the steels um, and the materials used and, and why and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then if you've got a more lengthy question that you want to get answered, just uh, use the contact us form. And um, you can also call our web our website. I think I think it's extension two. You have to listen to the, the message there for tech support. You'll leave a message and somebody will call you back if you have questions there. Great. Well, Bill, I, uh, this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing this podcast since the day I started it really. <laughs> and, uh, we finally were able to link up and, and get this done. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. We've both been busy, but it was, it's good to finally get it done and, and talk to you for a while. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Bill, will you have a, a great night and now and a great hunting season and especially with that goat tag? Yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me on and good luck this year. Thanks. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.